This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woi Wurrung people. Merdeka! 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 The country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. Welcome to Talking Indonesia. My name is Gemma Purdy. During its occupation of East Asian and Southeast Asian countries in World War II, including the Netherlands Indies, the Japanese military installed a system of enforced prostitution known euphemistically as the comfort women system. Today, these crimes are relatively well known and condemned. In 1993, the Japanese state issued an apology known as the Kono Statement. In the 1980s and 90s, a transnational activist movement, which included women from Korea, Japan, the Philippines and elsewhere, began to speak out and make demands for redress. In Indonesia, however, activism on the so-called comfort women issue was slower to emerge, faced with challenges from both outside and inside the country. In her new book, Systemic Silencing, Activism, Memory and Sexual Violence in Indonesia, Kate McGregor takes a close look at the system itself and seeks to understand it in the context of Indonesia's own colonial and post-colonial history. What were the social contexts in Indonesia prior to and following the Japanese occupation in relation to women, sexual exploitation and prostitution? What did it take for the voices of these Indonesian survivors to be heard? And how is this period in Indonesia's history remembered today? What are its legacies for activism on sexual violence more broadly? My guest today is Kate McGregor. Hello, Kate. Thank you so much for joining us on Talking Indonesia. Great to be here, Gemma. Before we get stuck into talking about systemic silencing your new book. A confession that I have been part of the process a little bit on the sidelines, helping with some editing of this book with you. So I'm very excited to talk with you about the book and share it with our listeners today. Now, Kate, you opened the book with a really powerful story about a memorial or a commemoration for a woman called Tumina. Can you tell us who Tumina was and what was the importance of her story in the context of your book? Thanks for that question, Gemma. So Tumina was from the central Javanese city of Solo and she is important to the book for several reasons. First of all, she was the first Indonesian woman to speak publicly about her experiences in 1992 and she was inspired by Kim Hatsun but also encouraged through her links with a very empathetic Japanese pastor, Kimura Koichi, to speak out. Now, her story is different to that of most survivors across the entire transnational movement who chose to speak out because she disclosed that she was a sex worker before being forcibly recruited by the Japanese military into the system of enforced military prostitution, which took place in Indonesia between 1942 and 1945. So she offered through an interview with Kimura a very rare first-person account of the conditions of sex work in the late colonial period, as well as her experiences 
in the so-called comfort women's system after she was rounded up and forced uh, to stay in a hotel to serve Japanese soldiers. So I argue in the book that even though Tamina spoke out very early, she seemed to quickly fade from the spotlight and she was not, for example, put forward to the key advocacy group that campaigned for the women, Indonesian Legal Aid, as a contact for the Indonesian media. So her story tells us something about hierarchies of victimhood here and who is considered a worthy victim. Because of her past as a sex worker, there seemed to be a sense that she was a less worthy victim. But importantly, later on, she was recognised by some activists, both inside and outside of Indonesia, and indeed her gravesite renovation and memorialization um, is really important. And she was also recognised in Japan, for example, in the Women's Active Museum, which has a whole board dedicated to survivor activists. Right. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about more of those women in a moment. Uh, you've mentioned a lot of these key terms to describe what we're talking about here, this, this period in history, the system of enforced military prostitution during the Japanese occupation, which is widely known as the comfort women system. But whilst this is your focus, Kate, it's very much broader, isn't it, to really provide us with the historical context for that system in Indonesia. So can you give us a little bit of that context? What were some of the continuities and preconditions in Indonesian society from the colonial period and before that too that you've identified that were present when the system became enforced? So, yes, in my book, I take what we could describe as a structural approach, I guess, to understanding the sexual violence carried out by the Japanese army and the conditions that made this possible. So when the Japanese entered Indonesia in 1942, I argued there was already a gender order at work in Indonesia, according to which Indonesian women were treated as, for example, sexually available to Dutch men for exploitation. And one of the clearest examples of that is the practice of Dutch men in fields of business, but also soldiers taking Indonesian women as live-in housekeepers or concubines who were sexually exploited. So these women in the colonial era were referred to as nyai, and this term was sometimes later used to describe Indonesian women who were forced to live with Japanese men during the occupation. So this practice was copied by the Japanese, but the same kinds of social stigmas that existed for nyai were later also applied to comfort women, the kind of shame attached to their experiences. Another part of that gender order, as you mentioned, was Indonesian women's lower position, I guess, relative to that of Indonesian men and the expectation that young women in particular would follow the instructions and advice of fathers and older men as well as brothers. And I draw attention to the historical practice of gifting girls and women to important men in societies to secure patronage. These cultural patterns of the commodification of girls and women and of deference to men also, I believe, contributed to the exploitation of girls and women who, for example, when village local heads tried to convince them to go with the Japanese, sometimes with false promises of other work, just simply followed, uh, followed the views of men. From the Japanese viewpoint, I think that there were also certain practices and assumptions in the Karayuki-san system, um, which I also examine in the book, that were replicated in the comfort women system, such as the view that women, and especially poor women, were available for sexual exploitation. And it's awful to speak of it in this way, but the mechanics, I guess, of this system have been relatively well studied, although it's still a highly contested area in history. As you point out, Kate, on Indonesia and the experiences of Indonesians within the system, research has been and is still really very thin 
and late to emerge. So why was this the case or is this the case? And I guess what did it take to bring stories like Tamina's to light? Yeah, so I I do want to acknowledge that there is some research on this topic, but probably not many book-length studies. And research on the Indonesian comfort women only commenced really uh, in relation to activism. So I think it's important to also acknowledge that some activists collected evidence and also wrote about the system. So one really important book is the 1997 book, Dorita Paksa, or The Forced Suffering uh, of Indonesian Women, which was written by the key lawyer who advocated for this case, Budi Hatono. Um, And that book is indicative of maybe one of the earliest more detailed writings about what happened to the women. There was also some research conducted by feminist organisations who sort of looked at the long-term health effects of violence on women, but certainly there was not as much as empirical research in Indonesia, and maybe that in part was a question of access to sources. So one of the key archives that I used was the NEFIS, Netherlands East Indies Intelligence Service records, which are available in the National Archives in Indonesia, but they're not really that accessible for everyone and also in the Netherlands. But also I think it was still difficult to write um, the history of women, of the women from these sources because the women are not at the centre of this story. They're really peripheral to the story, which is more concerned with what was happening to the Dutch during this occupation. And I argue that before activism emerged, there wasn't much interest as well in writing about these women, perhaps because they weren't considered important historical subjects or because their experiences were dismissed as just something that happens in war. And I think also that there was shame attached to the women. There was a sense that this whole history was really shameful. So that might also have contributed to a reluctance to write about this topic. And it would have made collecting oral histories about this topic Um, before activism began, also very difficult. So we must remember that speaking out for the women was also a very difficult choice and we should reflect on whether women would actually take that risk and share their stories for an oral history project uh, in the context in which, you know, they would ask the question, what do I have to gain from this? And more broadly, I think this is not just a question of Indonesia and a long silence on this topic, even though there is so much research into wars, It's very interesting that one of the last chapters that is usually opened is the issue of sexual violence during wars, and that's the same. The same is true for the Holocaust, for example. So there have been some more recent Indonesian studies on this topic, such as the book by Anna Mariana from the University of Rajamada, and she compares military violence in 1965 committed by the Indonesian military against women with Japanese military sexual violence against Indonesian women. So that's a really interesting new direction. The person who originally did the most to promote Tamina's story was uh, the Japanese pastor, Kimura Kuichi, who published her story in English and has also worked with the Indonesian activist Eka Hindra to reflect on her story and memorialise her grave. So underpinning that recognition is a more complex understanding of all women victimised in the system, I think. Yeah. Kate, so what did it take then to bring the stories like Tamina's to light? You know, what shifted and when did that happen? So uh, largely I think it was the beginning of activism in Indonesia which introduced a new framing around this issue that this was no longer considered purely an issue that was shameful to the women or shameful to the nation but instead I think attention was directed to who actually perpetrated this on the women and also reconsidering this as a crime against the women, not something that they had to be personally shamed about. So it took a reframing of the issue really 
in order for people to open up this history and consider it from a different perspective. And also this new discourse made it more possible and less shameful perhaps for women to be able to feel they could talk about their experiences as well. Exactly. So you have actually, I mean, as you know, we're, we're talking about where were the women, but in, in your book, you know, you, you have demonstrated that the evidence was always there and that, um, you know, you did some research deep in the archives that showed us that contemporary reports from Allied troops, including Australian troops who were in newly liberated Indonesia at the end of the war, about these, you know, so-called comfort stations as early as September 45. So I just, I guess, you know, give us a little bit more of a sense of how how it was that these cases you know, didn't get the attention that they might have in places like Australia where, you know, we were very focused and interested in, obviously, following the war crimes tribunals against the Japanese. So what was it, Kate, that was underlining, do you think, the the lack of attention given to, you know, comfort women and women more generally and their and their stories from that time? Well, I think the key issue here is what is the focus of history writing or, you know, historians are continually asking new questions about the past and that's one of the the great things about history. But I want to refer to a very thought-provoking article by the historian of Japan, Tessamura Suzuki, which I often use in my teaching. It's called You Don't Want to Know About the Girls, Do You? And the title of her article is extracted from an interview from an Australian war memorial with Australian soldiers. And it shows us that the soldiers definitely encountered women when they went into Indonesia, as you mentioned, to oversee the disarming of Japanese troops. But when they mentioned these women in interviews, uh, the interviewers were not interested. These women were not considered significant. At the same time, there was an acceptance of sexual exploitation during war and an attitude, as Mara Suzuki says, that of boys will be boys. So there wasn't serious attention to the victimisation of these women, perhaps also because they were Asian women. So this returns us to a crucial question um, of the questions historians ask, which stories they look for, which stories they reflect on. And in Australia, as you mentioned, Gemma, I guess the greatest interest was in soldiers and their experiences and eventually also on the POW experiences of Australia. But sometimes the women who were cited were also dismissed as just inverted commas sex workers with limited reflection on who the women were, how they got there. So I think the judgments were already made about the women. And there was also stigmatisation of Indonesian and Dutch women who'd been in that system immediately after the war. And Jan Rafa Hearn also talks about that in her memoir. The Dutch survivors were placed in a special camp, which was nicknamed the Whores Camp or the Rabbits Camp. So we can see there was already an immediate stigmatisation of the women right after the war. So I think that stigma was quite broad as well. Yeah, thank you. So, Kate, how about the present? How is the Japanese occupation remembered in Indonesia today? Because you've mentioned that there have been some studies and activism on this issue over the years, but has it cut through? Is in that national consciousness or that national memory of the Japanese occupation is the part that the women played or their experiences, is that remembered? To some extent, yes, there has been some recognition of this, which is incredibly important. I do end my analysis in the book at the year 2000, but there were a lot of changes after the fall of the Suharto regime in 1998. There was a general opening of all history. And I think maybe also greater attention to issues of human rights in Indonesian history, although there are some limits on that. 
So uh, Indonesian activists did campaign for the inclusion of Madiem, the most famous Indonesian survivor, to be her story to be included in national history textbooks. So I believe at least at one point her story or part, parts of her story were included in national history textbooks. But generally before that, the main emphasis in terms of the Japanese occupation was that Indonesians all suffered. But in fact, if we look at suffering during the Japanese occupation, it was Indonesians of a particular class who probably suffered most, including the forced labourers, who generally would have perhaps been from working class backgrounds. And also if we look at the comfort women, majority of them, the women who were more susceptible to being, you know, recruited in inverted commas into this system, would also have been women from, you know, working class backgrounds. So there is some attention to it, but it's generally probably framed, much like the forced labourers, as you know, national suffering rather than the individual people who suffered here. And also there isn't a lot of attention to this as a human rights crime that needs to be rectified um, in national history textbooks. Instead, it's just the story separated in the past and it's not linked to any contemporary justice claims, I would say. And Kate, what's really interesting in your book too is that you give us some quite deep analysis of some texts or films and, and books that were produced over the, you know, several decades from the 80s onwards perhaps where this is mentioned. This, you know, the, the, sometimes the woman is the main character in a story or a film and there's also been reporting more recently. How have Indonesians, journalists, writers, filmmakers, speaking broadly, covered this issue? Yes, so I think this is important too because sometimes the, the claim is made that there was silence on this topic and it's not completely true. People did obviously know about it because they lived through this period, but there also was the production of what we might call kind of cultural memory in relation to this past. So a famous novel of the 1980s was Kadawati, A Woman with Five Names, and a film was later made about that. And so in my book, I do spend a bit of time looking at the kind of tropes in that narrative. And that that book was written by a former soldier who tried to imagine himself in the shoes of a woman who experienced this period. So I look at the framing in that. And I look at how you know, the women's experiences is to some extent also kind of sexualized, eroticized. There's not really a deep sense of compassion for the women and what they experienced. And in that book, for example, you know, there's a lot of attention to her physical appearance and also a lot of attention to describing her sexual encounters, inverted commas, with a Japanese soldier. And then also later in the book, this woman in, you know, very much internalises the shame and believes that she would not be worthy of marrying a soldier because there's this concept of a stain, that she's a stained woman in Indonesia. And many of those tropes I saw kind of later replicated in some of the earliest media reporting on this issue. Tempo opened this issue in their media reporting 1992-1993. And there's this ambiguity in the coverage there. On the one hand, there's some recognition that the women might have a claim for justice here, but at the same time the journalists went out in search for these women, kind of pressuring them to tell their stories when many women clearly were not comfortable to give their names, to be photographed, because, again, they were facing this dilemma, why should I tell my story right now? What's in it for me? And the risks, once they told the story, that they might be subject to, to community or family shaming as well, which did happen to some survivors. So... Um, I focus really, I guess, through the 1990s. Some media reporting, when activism evolved, I think became more sympathetic, particularly depending on the reporter and the way they saw this issue. But it also goes to questions around, you know, what 
what ideas do people have about sexual violence during war, such as the this same boys will be boys attitude or an, an, a lack of questioning around, um, you know, what actions the military engaged in. So there's still continuing ambiguity, as we see even in media reporting in many countries in relation to contemporary cases of daily sexual violence as well. So it's a widespread pattern. Yeah, indeed, lots of universal themes there, not exclusive to Indonesia. And indeed, for the other, for women from who were comfort women, so-called um, elsewhere in Asia, there were similar struggles and challenges, right? So tell us about this Korean woman, Kim Hak-sun. Why is she such an important figure for this transnational movement for redress for the comfort women that, that emerged from the 80s and through the 90s? Yeah, so Kim Hatsun was a Korean woman, uh, the first woman to speak out publicly in the context of a legal trial about her experiences as a comfort woman. She participated in this trial along with two other women who did not give their names, but also with forced labourers. So she decided to speak to the media because of her anger, the ongoing denial of the existence of women such as her. So she made this brave choice to speak out and give a face to the movement in the context of ongoing denial um, when this issue was first opened. And her public testimony was captured on camera and was publicised across the world and it really emboldened other women to come forward. So I describe her and other women who did come forward, like Maria Rosa Henson in the Philippines or Madiem in Indonesia, as icons of the movement. And Madiem was an incredibly important woman for Indonesia. She came forward to kind of um, register with Indonesian legal aid in 1993, I think. And she was immediate, her story was immediately seized upon by the media because, particularly of her experiences, because she was recruited, inverted commas, as a 14 year old girl. Uh, from the island of Java, from Jogjakarta, and taken by boat to Borneo, where she was held in captivity. And not only did she suffer the same experiences as many other women of repeated forced rape, but she was also subjected to a forced abortion. So her story was particularly horrific. She was also a good speaker and a brave woman who came out with her stories. So she often was the first person the media would turn to for attention. So women like Madiem, Kim Hatsun, they gave the movement faces, people to attach the experience of up to 200,000 women to. And they became important symbols also of, I think, survivor activists who began to reframe their experiences away from something that was personally shameful to a context of seeing themselves as women who were victimised by the Japanese army. And today, Kim Hatsun has been remembered across the movement as a very important symbol of breaking the silence on the topic. And she's commemorated, for example, the San Francisco Peace Memorial today. And there are lots of women in your book. And, you know, I encourage people to read it and, and to, you know, read all of these incredible stories of brave women. But one of them is, you mentioned her already, Jan Raffelhorn, the Dutch Australian woman, who you said in the introduction to the book that you heard speak in 2008, I think, in Melbourne, and that kind of pushed you along a little bit in your journey to know more about this. What was her experience? And I guess particularly, what, what role did she play in bringing the Indonesian story to international attention? 
Yes, so Jan Raffehern was one of the most vocal survivor activists. She also was a good public speaker and did a lot to, I guess, publicise the plight of all women in the system. She's also a very important icon of the movement. She was of Dutch Indonesian heritage and victimised in the same colony of the Netherlands East Indies, so Indonesian and Dutch women were victimised in this same colony. And she, her experience was that she was selected in a lineup of girls and women from Ambawara internment camp and forced um, to serve Japanese soldiers. And she wrote one of the few English language memoirs on this topic called 50 Years of Silence, in which she shares incredibly insightful details about her experiences of, for example, trying to tell her family about this experience and the difficulties also of that. And she was inspired to speak by hearing Kim Hatsun. And she also became, as I mentioned, a key campaigner and travelled across the world to share her experiences. What I found interesting in the book, because I really wanted to think about the experience of Dutch and Indonesian women together, is that there wasn't particularly close collaboration between Indonesian and Dutch survivors, actually. I think Ahern usually appeared more frequently with Korean survivors who were very well organised because they had the support of the organisation, the Korean Council. Indonesians did not appear and indeed were not always invited to international symposiums on that issue. And I think one reason was that they didn't have sufficient resources also to attend these events. But I think O'Hearn certainly reinforced the message that women were victimised in Indonesia during the war, because at first there was a problem of actually getting recognition that women were victimised in Indonesia too. Right. So, so she didn't ever travel to Indonesia to speak at any time or... Not that I found, but, you know, maybe I missed something. But I think generally most of the solidarity meetings were held in Japan or in Korea. And also in 1992, there was an important international kind of public hearing somewhere in America. And only Korean and Korean women and Jan Rafferhern attended that. So I think Indonesians were a bit later to the issue. And then the, the key advocacy organisation that supported them, Indonesian Legal Aid, had limited resources as well. And, of course, they were involved in many different cases so they had to make strategic choices as well what could they do what what would be possible yeah and this these are some of the limitations that i guess we're getting to around activism in indonesia but as you describe it activism on this issue was late but it did eventually reach indonesia so what was its impact and i guess tell us a little bit more about those challenges and limitations for the women once you know they were activated as as it were yeah, great. So it's important to, I guess, uh, contextualise that you know, there was early Indonesian media reporting on this issue, but really the trigger for activism was the involvement of Japanese lawyers, which is a fascinating aspect of this story. So Japanese lawyers in 1993 sent a fact-finding mission to Indonesia. In fact, they were sending fact-finding missions across the world to Australia as well. And that was consistent with Japanese lawyers' uh, interest in human rights and how to deal with the legacies of the war so once they came to Indonesia, uh, they tried to identify key Indonesian lawyers to work with, and that ended up being the lawyers from Indonesian Legal Aid. And the Indonesian lawyers helped connect them with survivors of all cases of wartime victimisation. So that was forced labourers as well as the so-called comfort women. And what they did, I guess, was to encourage uh, Indonesian women to embrace a new framing um, of uh, their experiences and a framing that was also different to the framing of the 1958 treaty between Indonesia and Japan, which basically 
discarded the possibility of individual claims of harm and instead, you know, focused on economic aid as redress for the war. So women survivors, I guess, were encouraged to speak about their victimisation by the Japanese army, but there were difficulties translating those ideas. And even perhaps in Japanese legal circles, there was sometimes a difficulty of full recognition of some of the effects of sexual violence and the extent to which it was still difficult for the women to talk. And in Indonesia, some lawyers, even those in LBH, Indonesian Legal Aid, at that point in time didn't consider family violence as a human rights issue. So ideas of patriarchy, I think, also influenced the kind of legal understandings and the full recognition of kind of the effects of sexual violence and the difficulties of speaking about it. And there was sometimes confusion as well about what could Japanese lawyers actually do to assist these survivors. Um, there was an expectation that compensation would come straight away, but in fact the Japanese lawyers had gone there primarily for a fact-finding mission. So the result of that fact-finding mission was a recommendation to the Japanese government to pay compensation, and then the Japanese government endorsed a kind of hybrid organisation called the Asian Women's Fund uh, in 1995, but the focus originally was also mostly on Korean and Filipino survivors who'd been the most vocal the most kind of globally recognised um, cases of activism. So Indonesian women were at first overlooked there as well. And when they finally, when Indonesia finally got a deal, the government kind of took over, ignored the views of survivors and the views of Indonesian legal aid and instead signed a deal with the government to establish nursing homes for the women um, when the women had no interest in living in these homes and would have much preferred individual compensation. Right, yeah, they weren't consultant, Kate. No, no, not at all. And the reasoning is also that this was shameful, so it would be too shameful for them to come forward when they'd already come forward. So there was a lot of contradictory uh, logic there as well. Yeah, yeah, and so it became a negotiation between the two governments Mm -hmm. out of the hands of the women, yeah, and those two governments were on pretty good terms Yeah, that's right. There's a lot of economic dependence on Japan, a kind of desire not to rock the boat. And, yeah, it's really interesting to see uh, how the government framed this issue and also kind of framed it in terms of shame as well. Yeah. And so did any of the women take up the office to, to go into the nursing homes? What's the situation with that now? So it was very interesting in the context of this deal in 1907 and even when the Asian Women's Fund was created, there was a lot more kind of flow of ideas and activism between Japanese activists and Indonesian activists. In fact, there was a support group founded in Japan to um, draw more attention to the plight of Indonesian women. So there was even a book published in Japanese about Indonesian women's experiences. There were a couple of documentaries made about Indonesian women in Japanese broadcast back in Japan. Um, but And also this lobby group, Somji was their name, they also tried to investigate what happened to this money and the founding of the nursing homes and, and how many women actually ended up living there. And it ended up being very, very few. In general, those nursing homes were open to, you know, the generalised population. Very few women wanted to live there or wanted to be marked maybe publicly as, as having this experience. So it wasn't attractive at all. So you know, in the end, they got incredibly little out of that deal. But as a result, also, some Japanese organisations also fundraised to send money from citizens directly to a select number of Indonesian survivors. So a little bit of money flowed that way just to help with medical expenses, etc., as an important kind of expression of solidarity, I think. But from the Asian Women's Fund, it was just a terrible deal for Indonesian survivors. 
Yeah. And I guess, Kate, those women were already very old by that time. And are there any women still alive now? Um, I would check that there was one quite famous woman, I think her name is Sukarlin, who was actually nine years old at the time she was abused during the Japanese occupation. And Eka Hindra has written about her. Uh, and she was certainly alive a few years ago. But, of course, yes, there will be very few women left, actually, in terms of, you know, living um, living witnesses and, and living survivors of this violence today. So we know that the Japanese government made an apology for its treatment of the comfort women. How did that apology really shift the movement or impact yeah. these calls for justice and redress? I think the apology only came because of all this increased pressure. I guess we could, you know, partly attribute Kim Ha-sun as being one reason for this, opening the issue, the increased campaigning of the Korean Council, but also the importance of the discovery by Yoshimi Yoshiaki of archival evidence which proved that the Japanese military was involved in the system because until the Kono apology, there was complete denials that the army was involved. So the women's testimonies that the army had recruited them and, you know, subjected them to enforce a military prostitution was not enough. It took the discovery of this archival evidence to kind of finally shake the boat. So the Kono apology includes that recognition of, you know, state and army complicity in the system. And I think the um, response to the apology was that activists probably felt emboldened because finally there was recognition. So I guess the next question was what next in terms of compensation? We did see the Asian Women's Fund created partially in response to this opening up of issues. But I think scholars, particularly of Japan, have looked over time and, and made the point that sometimes when these apologies were made, they did not have the full support of the Japanese diet. They were always objectors. And what we've seen since 1993 is a kind of growth in backlash against this issue in Japan, particularly under the Abe kind of leadership. So not all politicians agreed with the Kono statement. And as I also mentioned in the book, there also in you know the last five years or so under Abe there was an investigation into the Kono apology to consider why was the apology made. So there's kind of been a retreat from that position. So I understand the 19 early 1990s as a period of opening and great possibility. Then the Asian Women's Fund uh, really created a lot of tensions in the movement because a lot of people felt it was an attempt to get out of government responsibility. And then basically we just saw a hardening of attitudes towards the so-called comfort women. The 2000s, you know, Women's Tribunal, in which uh, it was a people's tribunal trying to hold the Japanese government and military to account, was very important symbolically, but it didn't carry the full weight of the law. And since 2000, uh, you know, there's been a few ripples on this issue, such as the 2015 deal, which was primarily a deal between the Japanese government and the South Korean government. So again, ignoring other victimised women. So uh, yes, the Kono apology opened some opportunities, created more hope, but it's like an analogy that Steve Stern used was the box, the memory box opened, but then also shut at different moments in time here. Mm. So what about Indonesia, if we think about, you know, to leap forward, because a lot has happened in Indonesia as well in the last 20 or so years, and you provide us with this really rich context for the way that Indonesian society has dealt with sexual violence within society. But how do you think Indonesia is dealing with these historical cases of sexual violence? 
what part has this activism, this, you know, these incredibly brave people and, and their supporters played in the broader struggle to get stories of victims and survivors heard? Yeah, so again, the story of Indonesia fits a different timeline to perhaps, you know, Korea, because there was increased attention to sexual violence throughout the 1990s, and even approaching of the difficult topic of military sexual violence, which was difficult while the Suharto regime was still intact, but an incredible moment of importance was the effective disclosures of sexual violence in May 1998 to open up critical conversations about not only that violence, which targeted ethnic Chinese women, but also historical patterns in violence. So here, the foundation of Komnas Prompuan, or the National Commission on Violence Against Women, played a very important role in linking historical and contemporary cases of military sexual violence against women. And that included recognition of the comfort women, of um, women victims in 1965, as well as in East Timor, Papua and Aceh. So they began to move towards a more structural analysis of military sexual violence, which was very important in kind of opening up awareness about these patterns. And, you know, key publications in Indonesia, like Journal Prumpuan, also played a role in opening up these conversations. A lot of NGOs were also researching these topics. So I guess there was a huge emphasis on disclosing what had happened and there is more awareness and more ability to connect all these cases together. Conversations were more open, new research was conducted, and I guess survivors also felt more able to speak. But still, there is an enduring culture of impunity for almost all cases of military violence in Indonesia. So at the very least, we can say survivors who spoke out on this topic of, you know, violence by the Japanese army against them did create more awareness of sexual violence and of the gendered dimensions of violence. And I think activism on this topic you know, was one of the first in terms of exposing past sexual violence. And it's been incredibly important in terms of at least gaining recognition of women's experiences and also reframing their experiences away from the kind of narrative of shame. So if the story continues to be told, then it still does important work in at least challenging those continuous ideas that women should feel shame for what happened to them when, you know, sexual violence is committed against them. So that's one of the most important things, even though Mardiem at the end of her life kind of had some regrets or, or reflections on what had come of, of all her efforts to talk about this story. If I could talk to Mardiem today, I guess I would say you were incredibly brave and you opened up these stories, which are also significant for you know young people reading these today or Indonesian citizens reading them today to at least feel empathy and recognise what it is to be a survivor of sexual violence. Yeah, thank you, Kate. I guess just to finish, you mentioned statues for Kim Hak-sun. We opened with the Tumina small memorial that was made for her at her gravesite. Is there any other type of memorial or plan for one in Indonesia to, to commemorate these women? Not that I know of. And, yeah, I think it's very interesting, you know, that it even tells us something that this was a grave uh, memorialization because Tamina's grave is kind of in a fairly isolated cemetery in Solo. It's not like a very publicly visible monument, but we know that there is incredibly charged politics around monuments to the so-called comfort women uh, where they have been erected across Australia, across Asia, 
And, you know, I think I mentioned a case in my book as well in the Philippines where there was so much pressure that a monument had to be removed, so so much pressure from the Japanese government because these monuments are sometimes read as shaming the Japanese government when the people who construct the monuments are also trying to engage in a campaign to have sexual violence more broadly recognised but also to remember the experiences of these particular women. So my inkling is that this would be unlikely because Indonesia's relationship with Japan is still incredibly important. So I think that the main domain in which we'll see activism continue is really in exhibitions, uh, kind of art projects, which still are occurring in Indonesia. And even in some literary works, we have started to see some, you know, literary writers also take up this theme and try to empathise more with women's historical experiences as well. Just to end, what do you think then is the legacy of these Indonesian women involved in, you know, this incredible transnational activist movement? Have those connections remained? Is that is that important today for Indonesian activism on human rights and, and all these issues? I think um, there continues to be, you know, some links between Indonesian activists. I think Komnas Prampuan remains an important kind of body for investigating these historical cases of human rights violations against women. But one difficulty in Indonesia is that, in fact, they have so many cases to address here. So where will the comfort women be prioritised? But the movement as a whole and kind of the learnings and lessons from the movement could still be incredibly important for thinking about any of these cases in terms of tactics and ways to open up these kinds of histories and to also gain recognition, like this issue did gain recognition from the United Nations and also from you know different organisations across the world. So I think there are a lot of lessons there. And also there are lessons in terms of you know the dynamics between survivor activists and other activists and how there can also be attention to caring for these women at the same time as asking them to speak out and represent, you know, themselves and others on kind of international stages as well. Well, I think your book goes a long way to really laying all that out, Kate. So congratulations and I hope everybody picks up the book and thank you for being here. Thanks very much, Gemma. That was Kate McGregor, Professor of History from the University of Melbourne. Kate's book is published by the University of Wisconsin Press. Talking Indonesia will return on the 9th of November, hosted by Liz Kramer. Remember, you can find the entire Talking Indonesia podcast archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog. Subscribe via iTunes so you'll never miss an episode or find us via your favourite podcasting app. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Thanks for listening and bye for now. Thank you.